Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for a new season of the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston, and I'm glad you're joining us. A few announcements before I introduce today's guests. First off, we've mentioned before that Anna and I are working on a book. We have an official title, The Just Kitchen, Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration. We hope to wrap up the writing process in October, so until then, the show will be coming out every other week. We'll let you know more about the book as we get closer to publishing. Second, I want to let our listeners know that I've been teaching a six-week course on food and race in the United States. It's a great course for an adult Sunday school class. I have some openings in the fall, so if you or your church are interested, let me know. You can learn more at foodandfaith.org. Today's guest is Yvette Blair Lavallis. She is a womanist public theologian, community pastor, ethnographer, and food justice strategist. Her work focuses on the intersection of food insecurity, famines, displacement, and gentrification of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous peoples. Her doctoral research is reframing the narrative of food insecurity, creating a faith-based policy that addresses food apartheid in the Redbird community of Dallas. An award-winning writer, Reverend Blair Lavallis is a a Public Voices Fellow of the Op-Ed Project, a 2018-2022 Fellow of Vanderbilt Divinity School's Public Theology and Racial Justice Collaborative Cohort, and a 2017 Academic Fellow of Princeton Theological Seminary's prestigious Black Theology and Leadership Institute. She earned her Doctor of Ministry in Land, Food, and Faith at Memphis Theological Seminary, and she graduated magna cum laude from Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Wyvet has a recently released book, Scrimpin' and Scrapin', The Hardships and of women and food insecurity in Texas through a womanist theological lens. And it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. And you'll find links to where you can find it in the show notes. Yvette, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate having you on the Food and Faith Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we like to start our interviews asking our guests uh, this question. What is your geography? What are the places, lands, people, culture, music, food, et cetera, that have shaped you to be the person that you are? I think that's a really great question because I think geography gives us context and it helps us to make sense of how we got to where we are. And so I know for me, I carry the soul and the soil of my ancestors with me. I want to honor and acknowledge that I am on Comanche and Cato land in the Trinity River water basin here in Dallas, Texas. And so I really come into this space as the fifth great granddaughter of Matilda Berry, a mulatto woman from Alabama who made her way to central Texas. That is a part of my geography. I think it's important to be able to to name this ancestry. Um, my, my geography is that I also come from sour apple now laters. <laughs> I come from Cracker Jacks and Chickle Sticks. <laughs> Those are some of the things that have <laughs> helped to shape who I am. And in terms of music, anyone who knows me knows that I am a Prince fan. So Prince has shaped a lot of who I am and, and what I do and how I show up in the world. <laughs> I love that. I think that's the first time we've gotten Prince as an answer to that question. That makes me incredibly happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
so with with that, you know, there's in I'm hearing you describing your geography. There's a there's a deep concern for the land and a deep concern for your ancestry and heritage in the land. And I'm wondering where where did that develop? That concern for land, that concern for ancestry, like has that been something that's always been a part of you, or is that something that has developed over over years of ministry? Where where is that coming from for you? actually is something that has developed for me over the years in ministry. You know, when I look back at um, growing up and in the summers, we would go to East Texas and visit my grandparents on my mother's side. And my grandparents owned a lot of land and we did Mm. a lot of things on the land. They actually allocated part of the land for a church to be built there. So, Mm. You know, there was always really this sense of this intersection. I just didn't know it as a kid. Obviously, I didn't have that language for it, but really more so as I became older and really started doing some some genealogy and doing some research, land became really more important to me because once I found out on my father's side that my um, fifth great grandmother traveled here to Texas, um, ended up in Corsicana, owned land there. And then on my mother's side, we're able to trace um, land ownership or stewardship, I should say, all the way back to 1880 on that side. And so Mm. I really started to think about who are these persons and how, how do we unmute their voices? How do we begin to tell the stories of our connection to the land? I know for me, as a little kid, I had a great connection to the land because I always made mud pies. You know, that was that was really my first formation, if you will, of, of, of learning about soil. And, hey, you can pick up soil and you can scoop it together. You can add a little water to it and you can make a mud pie. And so for me, that's that's really where a lot of this comes from. It's it's our connection to the land. What does the land say about us? What does it say about um, who we are on the land? And and is that relationship intact or is there a broken relationship that's there? Mm. Those are such important questions for us to be asking ourselves. And I think it's 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 a question that what I'm really encouraged by is seeing more people of color really wrestle with that question. Hmm. What does it mean for us to be on the land? What does it mean for us to be on stolen land? What does it mean for us to be on land on which we were formerly enslaved? What does it mean to have kind of longing for a land that we never knew? And all of those sorts of questions just really feel, it it feels like we're, we're more people are asking those questions and it's really encouraging to hear. So, so, Talk to me a little bit about the transition from from pastoral ministry to more food advocacy and 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 being more of a food like where where was that shift from sort of a a, a more prototypical ministry setting to noticing the needs around you and and moving into food justice work. Part of what I do really comes out of this spirit of activism and really helping to mobilize people. Um, It's a part of my upbringing. Um, There was a lot of community organizing and mobilizing that happened in our living room. Um, My mother was very actively involved in um, integrating a lot of the restaurants and stuff in here in the South um, back in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So in many ways, that's a part of my DNA. And I don't know anything other than 
um, you know, mobilizing and activism. In fact, I like to to tell the story that when my parents named me, they named me Yvet, you know, not Yvet, because they believed that the Y is not silent and that God would use me as a prophetic voice to go out here into these marginalized spaces and to and to I really amplify my voice. So so that's why it's Yvet, you know, the Y is not <laughs> silent. Um, but but yes, yeah, so. You know, after spending some time in pastoral ministry, um, you know, one of the things that I was taught when I was doing my um, master's at Southern Methodist University at Perkins School of Theology is is the sense of pastoral anthropology and look around the neighborhood, like mm-hmm. like do some intentionality of seeing what's happening outside of the church walls and really being actively engaged in the community. And so for me. That transition really started to happen, I would say, probably around 2019, where I live here in Dallas. Our neighborhood was declared a food desert when the last major grocery store left the area. And I was like, this makes no sense because Mm. this is still a developing area. It's a um, middle income neighborhood. And it didn't make sense to me that we would be in a area that was declared a food desert. And of course, all the definitions that follow along with that and really all these labels that go along with that. And so um, in serving at the church, the church where I was serving is just a few blocks away from where I live. So it too is in is in the food desert. And so we began to have some conversations about what are some ways in which we can respond? Like what is our ecclesial response Mm. to what is happening around us? And the more I got involved in learning about what was happening, in really thinking about these systems and these policies that are in place and why are grocery stores closing, what are really some of these root causes, then for me, that propelled me to say, okay, in this season, God is calling me to do work beyond the church and to do more sort of community pastoring and to really start doing this activism work of looking at what are these systems that we need to dismantle? How do we raise awareness about what's happening and what's impacting the lives of the people who are here in this community? When we're talking about um, food deserts or food apartheid and the in in equitable access to food, I have to admit Texas doesn't come to mind when I think about this conversation. What does the food landscape look like in in Texas? And and you know it's a it's a big state. Uh, so maybe we can just focus in on on your part of Texas. But what is what's the what's the food landscape like there when when we think about a state that has um, a lot of wealth, a state that has a lot of land, a lot of agricultural land, and yet you have these these uh, food access inequalities. Um, what's what's the landscape that you see of of food and food access in Texas? You're absolutely right. Texas is not included in this national narrative a lot of times when we're talking about food insecurity. And Texas is. It's this huge state. It's really um, the tale of two cities. There's a lot of wealth here, but there's also poverty here that we don't talk about. And so for the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I think you'd be surprised to know that there are 88 declared food deserts. Wow. 88. And half of those 
are in the southern sector of the city and I'm in the southern sector of the city. So when I look around at what's happening in Dallas, particularly in the Oak Cliff area, in the Redbird area, I mean, you can go three, four, five miles and you don't see a full scale supermarket. You see convenience stores, you see corner stores and you see, you know, this food swamp, if you will. You see all of these fast food eateries. And so there are a lot of areas that are impacted by food apartheid. There are a lot of areas here where people are struggling just to be able to get access to a grocery store because a lot of communities just don't have grocery stores. And unfortunately, we see a lot of attention given to the north of the Trinity River, the Trinity River is this dividing um, line, if you will, in, in Dallas, where on the north side, it's the more affluent area. On the south side, it's the low wealth area. And so you see a lot of attention given to the north side where grocery stores are coming in. You know, developers are doing a lot on that side, but they're not doing much on the south side of, of the city. And so um, that's, that's true for the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And then even when you look at you know, some of the rural areas in Texas, they don't have access to grocery stores either. You know, we know that the USDA defines food insecurity and food deserts, particularly in rural areas, if there's not a grocery store within a 10 mile radius um, out in rural areas. And a lot of the areas just don't have that. And I think part of what we have to do and what we're trying to do is, is to, to get people to remove these this lens of you know, rolling farmlands and all this cattle and beef and, <laughs> you know, the cattle barons ball and all of that. That's one picture. That's the glamorized picture of, of Texas. But there's this other part of Texas where food insecurity is is really skyrocketing here. The the rates are alarming and there's a there's a place um, in the most southern part of the state in the Rio Grande Valley that has the highest food insecurity rate in the country and it's right here in texas wow i i I think that that what you're saying will probably be really surprising to a lot of our listeners i think there's just there's this glamorized version of texas and and this um understanding of it as this agricultural place. And and yet we see this across the country that it's in these spaces where agricultural production is, is widespread that you always find communities nearby where food is being produced that are, are food insecure. Um, And it's just, it's just part of the, the inequities that we see um, throughout our country. So what was, what was you, your church, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, sort of uh, moving outside of the church wall, sort of to uh, figure out some ways to start um, dealing with these uh, food insecurity issues um, in your community. What was what was your church's response? How did you respond to what you were seeing as the pandemic started to really ramp up? Yes. So at First Christian Methodist Church here in the Redbird area of Dallas, um, we relaunched the Mustard Seed Faith Community Garden. Because again, here in, you know, March of of 2020, when when the pandemic really hit and began to shut the Dallas-Fort Worth area down, of course, as it did across, you know, across the country, then we really started looking at 
how do we utilize this land that we already have? How do we be good stewards of this land and think about ways in which we can respond to food insecurity in this area? The congregation is an older congregation. And so we saw a lot of older people who were suffering at higher rates of food insecurity because they were on fixed incomes. They did not have transportation. And with the quarantining and people really not being out and about, then that impacted them in a greater way that maybe we we really haven't stopped to to think about. So we relaunched the Mustard Seed Faith Community Garden. I say relaunch because about eight years ago, the garden was up and running. But again, because the congregation is an older congregation, they just didn't have the people to, to, to help to, to tend it and to maintain it. And so thankfully, with the work that I'm doing at um, Memphis Theological Seminary, this doctoral program, it gave me some extra insight into what are some things that, that we can do. And so we um, started partnering with an organization here in the area called the Oak Cliff Veggie Project, which is a grassroots organization that's run by a mom and son team, Betty Montgomery and Plez Montgomery IV. They came over to help us. They assessed our soil, took a look at what we had, and um, my members got out there and started putting together some raised beds. And then the garden guardians from the Oak Cliff Veggie Project came back over to help us plant seeds in these 18 or 16, rather, the 16 raised beds. And so we have been able to produce some beautiful, vibrant, colorful, healthy produce that we give away to people in the community. Um, originally, the idea was to be able to rent these plots out for $75 a year. But because this pandemic has lingered, then we realized that we should just donate the produce. And so that's that's what's been happening. We've been donating it. People come by, they drive by, they see it. And then they ask the question, how am I able to get some? And, you know, we tell them, let's just walk out here to the garden and, you know, pick what it is that you want. So that's been a way that has been very encouraging and has been one way of answering this question of what is our ecclesial response to food insecurity here in the Redbird area of Dallas. I love that. And what what has been the church's response? Like, how has the church been transformed by being engaged in this work? So the church has been transformed by being engaged in this work and, and is really making this connection more into the community and really understanding that when you have these God-given resources that God intends for us to share these resources, they should they should be shareable resources. And so it has certainly helped them to broaden their understanding in that. And also this sense of this reconnection with the land. So back to what we were saying, earlier, this sense of in, in, in these places where we've been longing for land, particularly as, as Black people, as, as African-American people, um, also dealing with trauma and land. Mm. And, and, and that was one of the things, because again, we're talking about people who are 70 and older. 
a lot of them grew up, you know, visiting their their grandparents and and, and places where they experienced trauma. And for them, it was a struggle at first because they didn't want to be out there working the land. For them, it was too reminiscent of days of enslavement and they didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so as we began to have conversations about how do you reframe this narrative and how do you reclaim land and start looking at stewardship of it and start looking at what God's original intent was for the land, then that helped them to see that this land is something that God has blessed us with. And how do we turn around and use this to be a blessing to others in the neighborhood? Mm. I am so glad that you mentioned that. Um, One of the conversations that I find myself having more often is explaining to people the deep trauma that there are, that there, that exists for a lot of African-Americans in mm-hmm. terms of this idea of, of gardening it's and, and the idea of having your hands in the soil of that being a step backwards that, that, you know, progress was moving away from the land progress right. was that we wouldn't have to uh, plant our own f- uh, plant and grow our own food that there was exactly. that, that we would move away from those traumas and yet there's these opportunities that exist with the with your with the garden you're talking about in, in many gardens the, of people finding healing mm-hmm. finding a place to talk about that trauma finding place to heal from that trauma finding place to um, sometimes even acknowledge it for the first time like right some, for, for some people like there's just not even an awareness that that trauma exists for them and until they 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 attempt to get their hands in the dirt. That's right. Um, That's right. And, and so I, I think it's 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 so beautiful to think of of that space as a space of of healing some generational traumas and being able Mm -hmm. to to confront and heal those things. I think that's such an important part of a lot of these garden projects that often doesn't go mentioned. Yeah. And I also want to say that um, it's men and women from the congregation who are out working in this garden and to see the transformation, particularly for the men, Hmm. because, you know, for them, I think, I think the trauma probably hits at even deeper levels than maybe what we've talked about. Mm. And so to, to see that transformation happen for them as they're out there in, in the garden and using their bare hands to, to dig in and, you know, to pull up weeds, but also to plant. And so I think there's something even there in pulling and planting Mm. and just what that means, because you're, you're pulling away layers of the trauma you're pulling away those experiences that that you've had or that you know our ancestors have had and you're saying but what can i plant in its place and and what can grow from that in a way that's going to be healthy in a way that's going to be beneficial in a way that's going to bring about healing and you know i've actually had one of the one of the members he's a 65 year old man who said to me that initially he had some concerns about being out there, but after being out there and just what it meant to put his hands in the dirt, he was glad that he did it. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. I, 
Yeah. Again, yeah. I, I, I just, I just feel like there's so much healing to be found in the land that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, Again, especially maybe especially for people of color that one of the insidious parts of enslavement and I've I've said this before, but one of the insidious parts of enslavement was was the breaking that connection, that that historical ancestral connection that we had to land and making us hate having our hands in the dirt right um and and to see that um yeah and uh, and i actually hadn't thought about the gendered part of that where for men some of that some of that pain might be even even deeper and more traumatic Mm -hmm. Uh, so thank you for drawing attention to that as well yeah um you mentioned that you are uh part of the uh, program at Memphis Theological Seminary, and they are uh, they are friends of the show. Um, talk to me a little bit about first off how how did you find out and, and get interested in this program, and and what have been the benefits of the program for you in thinking about what your your particular ministry is. So I absolutely love this land, food, and faith formation doctoral program at Memphis Theological Seminary. Um, it 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 is. It has changed my life. Like, really, it has changed my life. It has um, broadened my perspective in so many ways. And it has helped me to to be able to to show up in the world in these spaces and to be able to have different kinds of conversations, just like the conversation that you and I are having. Um, it has it has given me so much insight. And even with this research that I'm doing now. But um, back in 2018, I was a part of a church plant here in Dallas, and um, we were doing a sermon series on um, food deserts. And the sermon series was titled, When Will There Be a Harvest for the World? Mm. So, you know, kind of shout out to the Isley brothers there. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, actually at that time, the admissions director at Memphis Theological Seminary, um, Dr. Courtney Pace, she was a regular follower of the the church plant called The Gathering. And she happened to to watch and and she saw this this sermon series and really saw um, the emphasis that, that we were placing on it. And I talked a lot about how I was really concerned about what was happening in areas and why in particular was it you know black and latinx areas where latinx areas where this was happening and so not long after that she reached out to me and told me that there was this brand new program that was coming at Memphis Theological called land food and faith formation that really you know brings together this sense of theology and food justice and looking at land and 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 care of the land and is that something that I would be interested in? And I thought, wow, I didn't know that, you know, such a thing existed, that that there's actually something out there like that. And so that really was my introduction to it. And so once I, you know, filled out the application, did the paperwork and all of that, read through everything and, and thought about how I can use this particular program to really, um, 
help with whatever this new season, you know, that God was going to be bringing me into, then I definitely, you know, wanted to, to do that. So I'm happy, um, you know, to say that I'm a part of the inaugural cohort. I believe that um, a couple of my other cohort members have been on a previous um, podcast and this program is, is, is amazing. One of the things that I really, really like about the program is um, it's an experiential program. So meaning that we're not just sitting in the classroom all day, you know, reading and having conversations. We're actually out there on the land doing the work. We spend time you know, there in Memphis and visiting different gardens. We go and visit food banks and food pantries. We go and connect with farmers in the area to hear about their experiences, to hear about their struggles, to hear about their their celebrations. Um, We've had some immersion trips that we've taken. And so in all of that, being able to come face to face and hear the people who are doing the work and, and then to think about how can I take what's happening and go back to my respective, you know, ministry setting and context and be able to make an impact there? So um, I highly recommend it. Anybody who's thinking about, you know, is, is is this something that they feel like God is calling them to in this season to be able to talk about food justice through a theological lens and especially for African-American people and and, and for women, African-American women to talk about this through a theological lens, because we don't have that many voices right now in this narrative of looking at food justice through a theological lens. Mm-hmm. One of the things about um, a doctorate ministry program that might be different than, say, a Ph.D. program is it, it really they tend to be more practical, more hands on. Um, and a lot of um, was, I, I have plenty of friends who have, have done demon programs and a lot of them, I think, challenge you to think about what the potential for the church is and what the church can be mm-hmm. as you've thought about, as you've gone through your work and as you're, you're preparing for graduation and, and, and congratulations on that. Um, as you've thought of gone through the program and as you're thinking about um, wrapping up, has it sparked any thoughts for you about what the church should be and what the church can be in relationship to thinking about the land and in relationship to thinking theologically about um, these things that we we often just don't talk about at all, less known talk about the theologically. Um, but, I, but I'm wondering if it's given you any any new sense of vision for what the church can be. It absolutely has given me a new sense of vision of what the church can be. We know that the church is the epicenter of the community. The church is the the the, the prophetic voice for the community. The church is the place where people come to, to find hope, to find healing when people are hurting. And we know that the church is this clarion call um, for the community. And so I think that there are really two things to look at. One is the church is probably one of the places that has the most land And a lot of that is underutilized land. And so how can we start looking at land as stewardship instead of land as ownership? 
And how might we be able to transform our communities by thinking about how do we care for this land in a way that honors God and in a way that helps to be able to respond to food insecurity. You'd be surprised at what you can do out there on the land, you know, allow for um, urban growers to come out and use that land to be able to plant and to, you know, produce a harvest for the community, even if the church itself doesn't um, feel like they have the capacity to to create a community garden, allow somebody else to come out there Mm -hmm. and to be able to utilize that. Um, The other part is, I think, when we think about our response to to food insecurity, I I think from a um, from a pastoral sense, from a from a preaching sense, one of the things that comes to mind for me and, and probably that a lot of people are familiar with is, you know, the stories of Jesus feeding the multitudes. Mm-hmm. And when we think about the story of you know Jesus feeding the 4,000, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, we always shout at the miracle. Mm-hmm. The question becomes, why were the people hungry in the first place? Mm-hmm. And what is it? that was happening. And so when you when you look at that, particularly in Mark's gospel, where in one of the accounts, I believe it's in Mark eight, where, um, you know, the disciples are like, are like, well, where can anybody get anything to eat around here in this remote place in this desert? Mm. The word desert is right there. Mm. How do we take that story and preach it in a different way that we start to talk about food justice, spend less time on the shout and the miracle, but begin to ask ourselves, what are the systems and the policies that are in place that are causing this to be true in our neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. That's the focus that I would like to see the church to take is a focus of advocacy and activism and to begin to have these conversations, just like we've seen the church during the civil rights movement, step up with social action plans in the spirit of activism. We can do that same thing even now to begin to address the policies that are in place. And that's really what the focus of my project is, is not so much to talk about, um, you know, food deserts and food apartheid as this isolated system, but to talk about it within the systemic issues that are happening and these policies and how those policies need to change so that people can get access to fresh, healthy and affordable food. Mm. That's fantastic. You know, both parts of that, I think being able to, you know, the scripture gives us so many resources and, and we, we really just, we're, we, we haven't, we haven't scratched the surface of the resource that scripture gives us, particularly around this issue. When we, when we look at that story and you're right, we focus on the miracle part of it instead of asking the question of why are people hungry, which should be one of those driving questions for us as the church. But I also, you know, I think when, when we're in an age where, and we're often, I think, not very honest about this, but we're in an age where churches are declining in number and they're 
they're aging. And, and, and so a lot of churches get to a place of feeling helpless. And particularly if you have land, the idea of, of maintaining land, but being able to invite people onto, you know, to, to let go of these ideas of ownership, to let go of the possessiveness of it. Um, and to say, you know, this is something that God gave us in trust and that we can lend to others in trust and let them use their their youth and their energy to to produce something for the community. I think that's a that's a fantastic model um, uh, and sort of a, a beautiful idea of what the kingdom of God could look like. Um, yeah, because we, we really have to push the sense of ministry is partnership. Yes. And we can't expect the church to do everything on its own. And you're right. The churches are declining. Membership is declining and church is looking a lot different now out here on this landscape. And so I would really push and encourage churches to think in terms of partnerships, looking at what are the grassroots organizations in the community who are doing something that is answering this this question and how can you come together and work together in partnership to to do something about it? Um, I want to just say here quickly that part of um, some of the work that I've been doing here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is over on the Tarrant County side in Fort Worth. And I have um, this, this great honor of working with a group called Grow Southeast. They are an independent initiative that is a partnership with the Tarrant County, with the office of Tarrant County Commissioner um, Roy Charles Brooks, and also the Healthy Tarrant County Collaborative and a group called COACT. And so together in this partnership, they are addressing food insecurity in the south side of Fort Worth. Mm. Um, there are 43 declared food deserts. And within this 34.5 square mile radius, there's two grocery stores and there are 100 convenience stores and food marts. And so within that model, there are churches who are taking part of their land and they're partnering with urban growers in the area to be able to come and utilize that underutilized space Mm -hmm. that's out there on the land. And to have that as an area that can be used for growing food. Mm, That's fantastic. That's great. Um, you've you've talked a little bit about what your project is. Um, what do you what are you what are your kind of next steps for you in terms of thinking about um, you know taking some of this work forward and thinking a little bit about what your your ministry and how your ministry is developing. One of the things that I'm working on is, as we've talked about, how Texas has not really been included in this national narrative about food insecurity is I'm writing a book. So part of my background is I'm a writer. Um, Before going into full-time ministry, I spent years as a journalist. And so I'm doing this book called Scrimping and Scraping, um, The Hustle and Hardships of Food Insecurity in Texas. And it really looks at food insecurity through a theological lens. And as a Black woman, I write through this um, womanist lens because I look at what's happening to the least of these and to those who are most vulnerable and exposed and asking the question of why is that happening and being able to 
unmute the voices of those who have been made marginalized and those who have been minoritized. And so I'm really excited about that because that will give people some insight into what's happening here in Texas and particularly how it's impacting women even more. There are about... um, 60% of the households in Texas are headed by women. Um, And so when you look at the food insecurity rate here and how literally women are scrimping and scraping, you know, that term is from this black vernacular of trying to make ends meet and, you know, robbing a little bit from tomorrow to try to make up for today. Um, You know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, just that sense of what that means. So that's one of the things that, that I'm doing. And then the other is to really be out here and to raise more awareness and to talk about food policy and to have these conversations, Um, you know, hopefully to do some lecturing to talk about this. And then um, I do a lot of work with Bread for the World and I'm grateful for them and for the work that they are doing in advocacy. And I'm learning so much more about how to do more advocacy. And so I want to take those experiences and to be able to go into the community and to share that and to say, let's have the conversation. Let's raise the awareness. Now, here are the steps of what it's going to take to be able to try and make some impact. So we we like to end our our interviews with this question of what gives you hope and not a hope that um, ignores the the big issues uh, that we've been discussing, but but hope that gives you the the courage to get out of bed every morning and say, I'm, I'm going to fight to do something about them. That's a beautiful question. What gives me hope? I live near an elementary school. And when I hear the kids out on the playground, that gives me hope. I can hear them out there. I hear their laughter. I hear them giggling. Sometimes I'll look out in my backyard and over the fence and I'll see the kids running and chasing after each other and just enjoying being outside. That gives me hope. Because what that says to me is all the work that we are doing now is for them. It's for that generation. It's to be able to to leave a legacy for them. It's to take not ownership, but stewardship and to look at how do we demonstrate and model for them what it means to take care of resources, what it means to Wake up and try again, even when the world has tried to knock us down. We're out here trying to dismantle so many structural barriers that are in place. But every time I think about those kids and their laughter and that giggle, that's what brings me hope. Yeah. Thanks for that. Where can people connect with you, connect with your work? Um, What are where? And and connect with your book once once it is finally released. Where can where can people find find you and, and what you're up to? So I have a website. It's whyvetblair.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter, Yvette Reverend Y Blair. And on Instagram, you can connect with me at Preacher Girl716. 
Excellent. Well, that thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your your inspiration and and your and uh, all the great work that you're doing down in Texas. And um, love to have you back to talk about the book and any future projects that you might have going on. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity. Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.